Today, we're talking a super inspiring story from a chef out of New York City who can't technically cook, but is still running a kitchen. Some industry disrupting kitchen gear, bro culture, and one of my favorite blogs just published a new post. Welcome back to the show, folks. My name is Justin Kana. This is episode 42 of The Emulsion, a show where I talk about the news stories that navigate that matter to me as I'm navigating my career as a professional chef. Hopefully, you're enjoying the show so far. If you want to leave any feedback or suggest some stories that you would like to see on this show, you can hit me up on Twitter. It is Justin underscore Kana and hashtag The Emulsion so I can find the stories that you're suggesting. Thanks so much for joining. We're going to get right into it in a second, but as per usual, the show is kind of entirely supported by you folks. We have no sponsors, no ads, no nothing. And because of that freedom, I am eternally grateful. If you like this show, if you've gotten any value from it, I have an ask for you. If you're feeling nice and another one of you is feeling awesome, you have you have two options today. Go to justincana.com. That is the site where I publish all of these shows. You get access to all of the show notes there in case anyone's curious. But once you go there, you have an opportunity to sign up to my email newsletter, which would make you a nice person. But if you're feeling like being awesome today, go ahead and click on that support me on Patreon button. You can support not just this show, but all of the content I do for as little as $1 per month. If you're already part of the Patreon fam, thank you. Thank you. Your support is always appreciated. But without further ado, let us get into the show. Today's beverage, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I need to start with an apology. I actually didn't do a beverage on uh, episode 41, I think, when we do a super fun uh, Q&A when we get to episode 100, episode 41 was missing a beverage, so that's unfortunate. And I was going to do coffee, but um, I drank it all. So the only thing that I do have is this, uh, everybody knows this one, this is the, the, the shitty water that you get from Starbucks when you're like really thirsty but their water cups are too small, and the line is too long. Everybody knows this water. Just staying hydrated, guys. Just staying hydrated. So let's get into it. The first story today comes from New York City. Have you guys heard about this? This is a story from Chef Eli Culp, and he owns a place called High Street on Hudson. It is a very, very simple Italian-inspired menu, but there's kind of an asterisk, right? Culp does all of his work and lives his life from a motorized wheelchair. That's right. So he's from Philadelphia, and in 2015, on a trip to visit his family, he was on an Amtrak train that was traveling from New York City to Philly. The train, unfortunately, derailed, going 102 miles per hour, if any of you remember that horrible incident that happened uh, in 2015. So 200 people were actually injured, and Amtrak paid upwards of $265 million to those affected. Chef Culp was one of those people when he suffered an incomplete spinal injury. So after an 18-month recovery process, he went through a ton of struggles outside of just the physical aspect. He was battling depression and even developing a resentment towards food after eating probably countless uh, hospital meals uh, where where the food isn't exactly stellar. So prior to that, he was the executive chef of Teresi Italian Specialties. That's where the inspiration for his menu comes from, uh, which for those of you that don't know is kind of a New York City institution, and it's kind of a fantastic restaurant group that uh, kind of rules the hipster Italian mafia in New York City, if you will. But I, I got a ton of inspiration from this story because he still collaborates with uh, his chef de cuisine, uh, Sean McPaul, that is the new kind of executive chef that kind of executes on the vision, a vision that actually changed since his time away from the restaurant. He says, quote, Before, I felt like everything had to be spicy, acidic, sweet, sour, bitter, highly flavorful. He says, as a chef, you're constantly in the restaurant, and if you're not in the restaurant on your day off, you're at another restaurant. You want to be amazed every time you eat something. Now, 
uh, he says, now chicken noodle soup and simple grilled fish are on their menu. It, he says, it opened me to accept eating more simply. I used to make fun of that person, end quote. So the other crazy part of this story is that he lives in Philadelphia now full time and commutes to New York City every single week by car this time to work on the menu. So this whole story just made me kind of like insanely grateful. And sometimes it's super important to have those moments where you're like, yeah, maybe I'm not really getting paid a lot or like, yeah, maybe I'm not on that station yet. Or yeah, maybe that person was a dick to me last night during service. But like, think about the fact that you can walk with your own two legs right? Like put things into perspective. That was definitely one huge takeaway for me on this story. And I hope you have the same reflection. Gratitude is super underrated. Next up is a story for the gearheads listening. Fast Company did a story all about disrupting the high-end kitchenware market, and it highlights a company called Material. Now, they have a really similar model to Meeson. If you guys have been paying attention to them, that's the company that launched on Kickstarter. Uh, they did a chef knife, like a high-end, I, th- I think it was kind of a stab at like the Henkels of the world, uh, but they did a chef knife for $65. But Material wants to tackle one step further, where they start to think about the bundle industry, right? So their their fundamentals package costs just 175 bucks. It includes a eight inch chef knife, a three and a half inch paring knife, a metal spoon, a wooden spoon, a slotted spatula, tongs, and then this amazing kind of Bain Marie style base that also doubles as a magnetic as a magnetic knife holder. I was just amazed by the design of all their stuff. So it's like. It's like a box, it's a wooden box, and you can keep all of those like spatulas and spoons in it, but it also has like one side of the box has like a magnet in it, so you can stand the knives up and it sticks to the wall. It was crazy. Uh, it does look like Shun stuff a little bit, their kind of knife handle shape with the silver cap butt on it, but it also that also kind of carries over to their metal tools as well as far as the design goes. It comes in an almost black and an almost white color wave. I'd be psyched to receive these if I was a kind of newly married couple, and that's one of the reasons why this company is being called a disruptor, because if you can get these essential tools for less than 200 bucks instead of an entire cabinet of useless kind of unitaskers, Uh, that you would normally pay upwards of $500 for, um, it's a no-brainer, right? And they're also offering free shipping and a 60-day trial period and a lifetime guarantee, things that I think consumers are starting to expect now from these companies that are selling these more premium products. So to me, again, this is a no-brainer. And if you have anyone on your list that you still need to shop for, I know that like as a chef sometimes like we get looked to for advice on what should I buy for my house and you don't always want to recommend people to get the nice stuff that we work with because it's just too expensive um but again material is the name of the company and if you want to check their stuff out again it's one of those things where uh, I always feel like I have to say it I don't get paid by these companies to say it it's just I'm a gearhead myself and I am constantly looking for new stuff to either share with you guys or to get for myself to make uh my work more either efficient or more comfortable or uh, less of a headache. Uh, But again, I'm interested in kind of figuring out how to get that magnetic knife base thing in my life and keep that on my station somehow or have them design one for the professional chef. I think that could be really, really cool. So next up, we covered him last week. We are covering him again. Uh, Adam Platt, he was writing for New York Magazine. He reviewed the new aviary space in New York City and gave it a dismal two stars out of five. So why so low? And this is where I kind of get a little bit ornery about his uh, discussion. We're going to go into a rant. I think this is rant number two, one of two for this episode. So stra- stra- strap yourself in, put your put your rant belts on. He says uh, one star, he gave them one star for inventive food and drink and another star for the office space next door, which is kind of a, um, 
it's a darker, more intimate, private setting where you can have all of the aviaries, cocktails, and snacks that go along with, uh, again, that's Grant Atkins' space that he just opened in New York City, for those of you that are a little bit lost when I'm talking about the aviary. Um, but... And he also took away stars. He said, minus a star for the price and minus a star for the space. And my question is, where's that last star, right? So it's like one star plus one star, minus one star, minus one star. Where's that last star? Why do you just give them two stars? Uh, one's missing. And I feel like this is a case of kind of a trend that we've been seeing a lot of reviewers kind of getting high on tearing down the ambitious restaurants, the luxury places, because it doesn't appeal to the masses, right? And in regards to the space, he says, quote, the, the view from the top of the Mandarin has its pleasures, but the limitations in lighting, noise, and traffic flow make it feel a lot like you're experiencing those elaborate culinary tricks in, well, a hotel lobby, end quote. So, yeah, I took a look at the photos. I can see that. The photos do look like you're kind of in the trendy hotel down the street, but compared to the aviary in Chicago, which I've been to several times, it at least takes advantage of windows, right? Like, it's in a, like, <laughs> the original aviary is like in a basement, and at least that's how it feels like. And I feel like the critics fail to take into account the target demographic of a restaurant when they do especially these kind of reviews that are focused on pleasing the everyman, right? I feel like he went into this establishment expecting it to kind of appeal to everyone, which for everybody that isn't familiar with starting a project, it, that's the quickest way to fail, right? The quickest way to fail is to try to please everyone. So of course the aviary sucks for kind of like the NYU student or the graphic designer who just likes to go out and drink his Miller High Life after work, right? Like the aviary isn't about and will never be about that. You have a client flying in from Singapore and you want to take them to a place for drinks and have a fun time or like you and your date can't really afford per se, so you make a reservation at that dope pasta place down the street, but you want the experience of going up in the Mandarin Oriental, you can spend 30 bucks a person and get that experience at the aviary before dinner or after dinner even, and then go enjoy yourselves and your kind of carbonara pasta after that. But he even says in the review that a comment that another guy at the bar made, he says, quote, another grizzled boozer at the table ordered the house version of that Mexican libation, the Michelada, which was touched weirdly but not unpleasantly with coriander, a smoky Japanese whiskey, and hints of soy. The guy says, who's pouring this kind of thing at your local bar? The answer is nobody, end quote. So the Pete Wells and the Ryan Suttons and the Adam Platts of the world, they do it with places like Per Se, right, yes, because th that has maybe some weight behind it, right? And the, and the New York Times did it with Danielle, and yes, I see the merit in exploring places that are actually delivering value for money, like making sure that we aren't just touting places for names or pedigree or location, but this is completely undeserved to a place that's doing something different in a New York City landscape where bars are a dime a dozen, right? Like the fact that you can pay 21 bucks for a cocktail that takes hours to prep with a stunning view of Manhattan in a bougie lounge space with incredible service isn't that ridiculous to me, right? If you notice all those costs adding up. But if you haven't noticed, I'm getting a little bit more opinionated on my restaurant reviews. Um, you can go ahead and actually check out my latest video on YouTube that I made. Um, it's a series that I'm going to start called This Place Called. Um, you guys really seem to like it, so I'm definitely going to do more of those. The first one uh, was, the, it, it was called This Place Called Bateau. Um, it's a steakhouse, contemporary steakhouse here in Seattle, uh, and it's kind of like, it's hard to recommend a place, uh, sometimes, and I really like to be transparent in the videos that I'm going to make. They're going to be experience-based and story-based, um, 
I feel like it's really hard to recommend a place if you've only been there once, right? Uh, you need several varying experiences with different company ordering different menu items, at least in my opinion, to properly review a restaurant. And because I talk so much shit on this show about critics, I figured I might as well back it up with some opinions of my own. So again, this this place called is normally a story about my experiences. I say what I ordered, what I thought, who I ate with, and the total that we paid at the end. I, I'm totally transparent with the cost. And um, like I said, I got some great feedback from the first episode. I definitely had a ton of fun making it. So I'm going to go forward with that, turn it into some sort of a series as I continue to eat out. Uh, but here's my question for you guys. Do you agree with this review that Adam Platt made, uh, giving two out of five stars to the aviary in New York City? When you look for reviews, do you respect that kind of every man's perspective? Do you want to see that from the critic? Or do you kind of want to see them take the restaurant in the context that it's meant to be taken in and then weighed against that criteria? Like... Would you pay $26 for a cocktail by Grant Ackett's? Uh, and, and what was kind of the most, like, what if it was the most creative cocktail you've ever had? Do you think the price point is erroneous? Because apparently Adam Platt did. Um, answer all of those questions right now. Just kidding. But seriously, I want your comments because I'm genuinely curious. This is a story that fascinates me. Next up is a story that I really, really found interesting where Grub Street interviewed some of the OG uh, Food Network media moguls, the ones that started the network back in the day, the original chefs, the original personalities, the producers, the directors, and it's an amazing look into what it took, basically, to start a network from scratch. I'm going to read you some of the quotes, but as because I'm someone who is interested in kind of continuing that train, what they started, being a part of the next generation of chefs that take advantage of media, and I find this stuff super, super interesting. So Aaron Salkin, who is an author, said, quote, no one ever associated cooking shows with making a lot of money. Even Julia Child's show did not make a lot of money. People just thought, there are these kooky characters and they cook on PBS. Who watches PBS? End quote. Even on differing opinions, so Pat O'Gorman, a producer, saying that they got some pushback when, quote, who in God's name would watch food shows? And then he says, I guess I was wrong, end quote. And even an opinion uh, that makes me question this show, uh, someone saying, quote, an early show we had was about the food business and why we thought people would be very interested in that. You would find out, for example, what the corn crop is doing this year. I mean, this was the kind of thing that commodity brokers like to look at. You were learning all about these things that were really important, and you would think that foodies would be interested in, but no one watched the darn thing, end quote. Is this show a good idea? Regardless, uh, Sarah Moulton, who was another chef that I watched a lot growing up, saying, quote, there was no oven in the first show that she was shooting. So I would pretend that I was putting things into the oven by putting them under the counter, and then someone at my feet would either hand me the piping hot thing, or there would be a swamp out under the counter that looked vaguely hot. End quote. Lols. That's a good one. I'm not sure how I'd react in a, in a scenario like that. But there was one other quote that I wanted to, to, to read for you guys, and I don't know if I can actually pull it up because I thought I deleted the article... Um, it was by Ming Tsai. So he says, quote, I hate the term celebrity chef because Brad Pitt is not a celebrity actor and Brad and Tom Brady is not a celebrity quarterback. He's a quarterback. I'm a chef. I thought that was a really interesting quote and kind of makes you think about it in a, in a different way. It's not like, well, you're not a chef, you're a TV chef. It's like, you're just a chef who is able to get more eyes on you and has more influence than the chef down the street, which is an interesting way to think about it. 
But that's literally, there's literally like 40 or so small quotes from kind of big players in the industry. If any of you are interested in the food media side of things, I highly, highly recommend it. So origin stories are always fascinating to hear. I enjoy this article a lot. But what actually made me think about, and maybe you guys are in a similar boat, is I kind of like helicoptered up and looked at the space, uh, the kind of food, restaurant, chef, media space, and I started to notice a pattern, right? So chefs got into TV later than everyone else did, and when they did, it made sense. And prior to that was kind of the golden age of print reviews on restaurants. So before chefs had TV, the only way that you learned about restaurants was through reviews and print magazines and newspapers and literally paper copies of the Michelin Guide. And then someone realized, what if we just put these chefs on TV and had them cook and convey their personality and tell their stories there? And it worked. And We had this kind of like big phase of a ton of people going straight to TV and then another group of people like me who was like, never, ever am I doing TV. It sounds so artificial. These guys don't really know how to cook. There's no soul or artistic quality to it. And then after that, boom, print reviews started to get replaced by bloggers. And then I think we're going to see a very similar revolution with chefs, but now taken online. But I think it's a very, very important caveat where... When TV chefs became a thing, they didn't just put cameras into uh, kitchens and record them doing what they're doing because that's not interesting, right? It's going to have to be the same thing, and it's something that I'm seeing quite a bit in people that are trying to win in cooking online. They're doing TV cooking, but on the internet, and it doesn't work, right? Because people just see it and say, oh, that's the same thing that I could see on TV. It's not. It's it's nothing different. So in the same way that Emeril kind of revolutionized t- being a chef on TV, someone needs to do that for the internet, and then they will win. At least in my opinion, the ones who can win on the internet will win in real life. Uh, it's a thesis that I wholeheartedly believe in. I just want to document that I'm saying it now. Uh, I mean, Renee Redzepi, Alex Atala, Magnus Nilsson, they're all on the map because the media is covering their stuff and telling us consumers it's a good idea to eat at their places. But what happens when the chefs start to control the content, right? When they start publishing online themselves and start to get big on telling their own story? It's uh, something I'm clearly interested in, and if you are too, I'd highly recommend this article. Um, but as always, that's linked up in the show notes on justincana.com. Whoa, little cord action. Uh, next up, we are visiting it because it's such a heated topic right now, not just in our industry, but around the world. It is a story and article from uh, Megan McCarran from Eater on gender stereotypes and masculinity. So right off the bat, disclaimer, it is biased. Yes, it's definitely biased. Uh, I'm sure if you're someone like me who is in the firm camp that there's a zero tolerance for harassment or discrimination, this article is going to make your eyes roll back in your head. Uh, if you have like, if you're like me and you're for a pro-human kind of kitchen and working environment, uh, I, I hate that I have to cover it, but we have to talk about it because it's got some. It's got a, a couple of really interesting points that I hadn't really weighed in on in the arguments before, and I think it's important to talk about. So, she tells us things we already know, right? Like catch classic kitchen confidential upbringing, plus the latest sexual harassment cases from around the world to the kind of predominantly male-centric kitchens on the fine dining end of the spectrum. She makes all of that very, very clear. But a point that she makes that really made me tilt my head was, quote, when we're talking about precarious masculinity, it's not a conscious process. And she's now quoting Deborah Harris. Men don't uh, form a cabal to ask, what are we going to do this week to keep the women down? 
In 2015, Harris and Patty Gufri published Taking the Heat, a study of gender discrimination in the restaurant industry. Composed of a wide-ranging survey of food media, as well as interviews from 33 women cooking in the restaurant industry, the book identifies several causes for rampant gender-based discrimination. According to the authors, the media plays a distinctive role in defining men's cooking as important and innovative, and male chefs are hostile towards women out of a fear of losing that valued status. The fear is that if more women enter the industry, chefs' cooking might be equated with women's work. Truly changing the culture of restaurant kitchens, in other words, will require redefining who can be a chef and whose skill as a cook is valued." End quote. And this is kind of an angle that I never stood in before, but the more I started to think about it, the more I started to think this is bullshit. And I want to go deeper because the last time I attempted to articulate my view on this, I got a lot of pushback. Uh, so let's start in an in a, in a interesting way and something that I like to do when I think about these problems that have never been dealt with before. We can't expect to come up with new solutions. What we can do is kind of take inspiration from people who have dealt with this before and have experience dealing with it. So. If you see something that's male-dominated, the classic maneuver is to kind of separate it into male and female categories, right? So for us in the U.S., the NBA, the National Basketball League, and there's also the WNBA, the Women's National Basketball League. It would be horrible if basketball was an all-gender sport, right? Because there's a, there's there's an objective physical trait that males just have that make them perform better than males. Like, it's it, it it you can't there's no arguments there right great so let's create two separate leagues so everyone can play it is a more level playing field and what happened right no one watches the WNBA to like name to me five WNBA teams I can't do it <laughs> I, I literally can't do it I don't follow it enough it doesn't get enough hype in the media because there aren't these amazing dunks and fast-paced plays that happen in the actual NBA or like the 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 NBA does that mean if you're a female, you ditch your dreams of becoming a professional basketball player because you'll never be LeBron James? No. Who is to say you can't be the WNBA's biggest star ever, right? Win in your category. At least those are my thoughts on, on separating in categories and, and that. But that's besides the point because Michelin and the New York Times and the James Beard doesn't have gender categories. A restaurant is a restaurant. So let's flip it again to another industry, music. And this is where it gets interesting and why I want to talk about it. So on the very, very high end of things, let's go to pop music. Pop music is like the highest level. Uh, Forbes actually like four hours ago published its 2017 uh, most earningest uh, musicians, the people that earn the most money. And all of them you've heard of before. All of them have pop music. And that to me is why I'm going to use it as kind of a uh, benchmark for pop for success, I guess. And I'm aware that running a kitchen is different than being an artist in the studio, but I literally did an investor dinner the other night with a female chef friend of mine, and the questions that they asked her were not female-focused at all. They were just as applicable to a dude. What is the business model? How much are you going to sell this for? How does this scale into other locations? Business, food, music, it's all a level playing field. What it comes down to is less of a question of gender, but personality and work ethic, etc. Us guys are just as scared to open a restaurant right? There's a reason I haven't pursued a restaurant yet, because I know that the environment just isn't primed for success for a restaurant. Because the market decides, right? The food decides. Taylor Swift's music decides. I'm so sick of the idea that one group of people has to lose. She says in this article, quote, 
The media-fueled mystique around chefs is rooted in their image as professionals and artists, technically gifted and extraordinarily creative, dedicated to the pursuit of excellence and seeking to revolutionize the way that we eat, backed up by mountains of prof profiles portraying them exactly as such. Conversely, women cooking at home are portrayed as relying on instinct and love, hewing to tradition, and happy to nurture their families for free. Two dueling profi short profiles of Nadine Levy-Rizepi in The Guardian and Bloomberg, both written by men, emphasize the simple, homey nature of her cooking and the supposed challenge of cooking for the best chef in the world, contrasting her baked salmon with the exo exotified live ants deployed by her famous chef husband, Rene. Meanwhile, Rene Redzepi released a personal collection of cookbooks. His insights about home cooking and family traditions were received as, quote, an instruction from an unimpeachable expert, end quote. And I did some research on that article that she quoted at the end, and I linked it up. Uh, here's a quote from it. Quote, what I'm the most exhausted is at the restaurant. What fuels me the most is actually cooking at home. It gets to the essence of feeding someone. There's that magic moment when you're cooking for your kids and family and friends, thinking about how you can make them happy. That honestly is, that honesty and generosity is what I hope to be able to put into Noma. When a home-cooked meal is at its best, when you sit at the table and everyone's happy, music is playing, kids are wonderfully easy, and the dishwashing doesn't seem too daunting. When the spirit is high like that, it's very inspiring, and that's the spirit I want to have at the restaurant, not a fancy experience, end quote. Like, that's the same stuff a normal human being would say. It's not a male-female thing. And here's where I get to my main point, right? Cooking at home and cooking at a restaurant are not the same. Can we just all agree on that? Great. Because... Like, if you're solid at shooting hoops in your driveway, that doesn't mean you're going to crush it in Game 4 of the NBA Finals, right? It's not the same league. Everybody wants this kind of distorted story of a chef that grew up on their grandmother's apron strings and then managed to crush it at opening a Michelin-starred restaurant. It's few and far between, right? Yes, there are those outliers, but a big percentage of us, me included, I grew up with parents who didn't cook at all. It's not good or bad, it's just how it is. If you come into it for the love of cooking and hospitality and feeding people, you might find that all of the bullshit that goes with owning a restaurant just doesn't do that for you, right? You need to love all the baggage that comes with the restaurant just as much as a rapper has to love all of the agent negotiations and venue scouting and relationship issues and money management problems that come with being a big-time rapper, right? Like, I think about the best female rappers right now. I play... I play this song uh, called Bodak Yellow on repeat right now by Cardi B because not because I want to support a female musician, but because the song is dope and a lot of other people agree with that. She understands the game and she plays to win in that space. She loves the rap game and she is herself in that landscape and she's winning because of it. Like, I can't win the home cook environment because it's not who I am, right? If I, I can't put on a dress shirt and a white apron and make red velvet cupcakes because that's just not who I am. However, Byron Talbot, who is a dude, he crushes that game. He's got over a million YouTube subscribers cooking at his house in LA. I'm just saying, these are my thoughts. I have no doubt that we can continue the conversation in the comments down below. I just had to say some of those things because I'm sick. I'm so sick of the victim game being played in the space. I have no doubt that everybody has their hardships and their troubles and their problems. But I mean, like, Jesus Christ. Here. Ugh. This book, this book, second book in the cookbook club, three Michelin star chef out of France. I don't know. I don't have any, I don't have anything else to say. It's 2017. No one is telling you no about the market. Just work hard, make great stuff, be kind to people. I'm done. <laughs> That's that rant. 
So last up, before we get into this week's non-industry show, uh, Bonjwing Lee, who is a dear friend and one of my favorite bloggers even before I met the guy, he published a new blog post, and I know it's weird to announce it like a new album, but he never blogs anymore. He was one of those guys that I followed distinctly during culinary school, and he did a whole post highlighting two experiences that he had on a recent trip to New York City. Uh, both highlighting two separate, like again, experiences that he had. The Grill, a spot that we've covered pretty extensively on this show, kind of the big uh, player right now in the expensive steakhouse-y, luxury, um, mafia kind of restaurant in New York City, as well as, per se, a meal that he thoroughly enjoyed. But I'm not going to quote or reference any of that piece because it's such a fabulous reading experience with his writing and his photography together. That is uh, all linked up or just go to his blog, ulteriorepicure.com. I will also have it linked up in the show notes on justincona.com. I just wanted to put that post uh, up because I always get excited when I see that he has published something. So last up, our non-industry story, and this is actually one you can watch right now if you're on YouTube. There should be a little rewind button that you can click up at the top of your screen uh, if you're on desktop. And check out YouTube's Rewind for 2017. It is seriously one of the most refreshing pieces of content uh, as everyone kind of does their list of best this and worst that of the year as 2017 comes to a close. Um, Their videos are always amazing recaps of pop culture and more interestingly internet pop culture that we all kind of consume on a daily basis fidget spinners and slimes and despacito and the eclipse it's great to see some of uh, my inspirations on that video as i just get just as much creative juice from the youtubers lately as i do the chefs so i highly highly recommend if you want to get all the feels as well as see some amazing production quality from youtube itself go ahead and check out youtube's rewind 2017 i'm pretty sure that dropped like minutes ago i just saw that update on my thing and i watched it and i knew it had to be the non-industry story So with that, this has been episode 42 of The Emulsion. Thank you so, so much for listening. Just a quick little reminder before you take off, if you want to support this or any of the other content I do for as little as $1 per month, that is like less than whatever you bought for breakfast this morning. I would love for you to check out my page on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash justincana. There you get a ton of amazing access and behind the scenes and gear giveaways and industry advice, cookbook reviews, again, for as little as $1 per month. That is like $12 a year. I'd sincerely appreciate your support. And for everyone listening that's already supporting, I can't thank you guys enough. If you can't swing Patreon right now, but still want to support what I do, I'm in the process of building a newsletter for you guys sending uh, this. I'm going to switch it to once a month, I think. Only because I don't want to clog up your inbox. I want you to get excited every single time I send you an email. Uh, So if you want to sign up for that, I will be compiling December's very, very soon. JustinKana.com will get you all set up. If you have any stories that you want covered on next week's show, shoot them to me on Twitter and hashtag The Emulsion so I can find them. Maybe if your story is interesting enough, you'll, you'll make me go on a rant again like I did today. I did two rants today. That's so bad. Gotta check my blood pressure. Uh, Subscribe to the channel if you aren't already. Definitely leave a thumbs up on this video or consider leaving a review on iTunes if you listen there. Regardless of where you are, I appreciate your ears. So thank you, thank you so much. My name is Justin Kana. Have a good one.